Uh, I've heard you talk about it a thousand times, which is why I don't watch it, because your taste is terrible. So, <laughs> so I just assume it's awful. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you about what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So, uh, as you can hear, I'm slowly recovering from my illness. I sound the tiniest bit better than I did uh, the last time you heard my voice. But this week, uh, we are taking a look at Martin Scorsese's Hugo. Uh, we ended up doing two Scorsese movies in a row. That was not really planned. It just kind of worked out that way. Uh, because I'm doing that this week, uh, because basically because I'm insensitive and I'm kind of an asshole. And I was going to do uh, an episode on Lion, and it's about a kid who gets lost at a train station. Uh, and so's Hugo. Uh, they deal with it slightly different ways. Uh, there's slightly different kinds of movies, but that is our that's our pairing this week. And in order to do that, actually, for both of these episodes, he will be returning for our Lion episode because he's in love with it. Uh, is Andrew uh, from the AB Film Review? So thank you for joining me, Andrew. Thank you very much for for having me to discuss this film, Hugo, and for Lion as well. So uh, I'll contain my excitement for that uh when we get to it yeah. <laughs> yes make a make an attempt at least yes yes <laughs> um so would you like to uh tell people about either of your podcasts um yeah i guess uh like so both of <laughs> both why of the shows uh why not sure uh both of the shows are film review shows um ab film reviews a fortnightly ish podcast which i do with my wife bendette uh, you can find that on abfilmreview.com. And The Last New Wave is an Australian film podcast, which you've been on a couple of times, where we discuss Australian cinema. Yeah, you should, def- you should definitely go listen to those two episodes. That's it. Like, just just go listen to the ones I'm on. <laughs> you, you've been on more than two, but it's okay. It's all have right. I, have I been on more yeah. than two? Because I did... Uh... What did I do for that show? Uh, I don't all, remember. All anything. this mayhem, the castle. Oh, that's right. All this mayhem. That's what I had. That's the one I had forgotten. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So listen to three episodes. Give Andrew three downloads. That'll do. Yes, absolutely. All right. Uh, so before I talk about Wonder, would you like to give us a couple movie recommendations? Yeah, I mean, because this film is set in the 1930s. And it's about cinema, and it's about gears, and it's also about train stations. Really, there are only two films that you can actually recommend to really seek out, and that's Buster Keaton's The General, which I don't know how you can live life without having seen The General. Um, but I've it's done a perfect it, film. just so you know, I've done it. <laughs> Watch it. It's a, it is a, it is, you know, the, the term perfect film is a rare thing that can actually be applied to certain films but the general is a perfect film uh and then also charlie chaplin's modern times as well which is a great great film um and both kind of have slight homages in this film as well yeah nice i'm glad we've kept things uh modern with our <laughs> with our recommendations i appreciate that now you can understand hey, in black and white now you can understand why it's so difficult to pair movies together when when new movies come out like jesus what are we gonna pair lion with 
Ugh. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I assume those are two movies that are definitely like I know of and are well thought of. So I assume that they're good recommendations. Uh, but thank you for the recommendations. I think uh, that might actually get me to watch a Charlie Chaplin or a Buster Keaton film, which I have never done. So really? Yeah, not a Aren't single you? one. Nope. Oh, oh, well, please insert it into your um, film education for Brit uh, in the future. It would be fantastic. I'd like to hear some stuff about that. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Uh, so we will take a break. Uh, I will talk about Wonder and then we'll bring Andrew back to talk about Hugo. Shannon, CG, Lauren, and Mel form the Nerds of Prey. A group of ladies bonded by comics, gaming, film, television, and fandom culture. Hang out with them bi-weekly as they dig into the very things that make them loud and proud nerds. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. Also, check out their Patreon at patreon.com backslash nerds of prey. All right, so it's time for the psychology section. So our topic this week is wonder, um, and it can be kind of... In the psychological literature, the word awe is used as well. So awe is this emotion that's close to wonder, but a little less joyous. There's a there's something called the wheel of emotions, and it's they see awe as a combination of surprise and fear, actually. So it's kind of the less joyous side of it. The dictionary definition is an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, fear, etc., produced by that which is grand, sublime, extremely powerful, or the like, in the awe of God, in awe of great political figures. Another definition is a mixed emotion of reverence, respect, dread, and wonder inspired by authority, genius, beauty, or might. We feel awe when contemplating the works of Bach. The observers were in awe of the destructive power of the new weapon. So in general, awe is directed at objects considered to be more powerful than the subject. In the case of our movie, I think we can we can see that the fear thing is a little bit difficult, but the people in this movie, when they talk about film, there is this reverence, and they do feel like art or film is more powerful than themselves. So there's a bunch of theories about why awe exists, and some of them are evolutionary. So two people, Keltner and Haidt, proposed that there was an evolutionary explanation for awe. They suggested that this emotion originated from something they called primordial awe, which is a hardwired response that low-status people feel in the presence of more powerful, high-status people, which can actually be adaptive by reinforcing the social hierarchies of the system that are already there. It would only have occurred when a high-status person had characteristics of vastness, whether that's fame, authority, prestige, and that required the low-status person to engage in what's called accommodation, which is just changing your mental representation of the world to accommodate this new experience. They propose that this awe later generalized to any stimuli that is both vast and requires this accommodation. This this can include being in the presence of a more powerful other person, but also spiritual experiences, grand vistas, natural disasters, human-made works like music, or the experience of understanding a grand theory. But this model has been critiqued by some researchers, including psychologist um, Vladimir Konichi, and he said that awe is a sexually selected characteristic. He said people can only experience awe, especially aesthetic awe, when they are not in any physical danger. He said the evolutionary origins of awe are from unexpected encounters with natural wonders, which would have been sexually selected for because reverence, 
intellectual sensitivity, emotional sensitivity, and this elite membership would have been attractive characteristics in a mate. And those would have also given people greater access to these awe-inspiring situations. Lots of high-status people are more likely to be safe from danger and have access to these awe-inspiring situations. So he argued that high-status people should feel more awe more often than low-status people. Now, the third evolutionary theory that's out there is that awe serves to draw attention away from the self and towards the environment outside. It occurs as a way to build informational resource when in the presence of these novel and complex stimuli that we we cannot be assimilated by current knowledge structures. So awe functions off functions in order to increase this accommodative processing, and that would have been adaptive for survival. This is the one that's actually the most recent and has received the most empirical support. There's also one non-evolutionary theory. So uh, forensic psychologist Louis Sundarajan um, critiqued that first model by arguing that being in the presence of a more powerful other elicits admiration, but sometimes doesn't require this accommodation that they talked about. So he expanded on this model by arguing that first, an individual must be confronted with perceived vastness. If the individual can assimilate this vastness into the existence, into the existing mental categories they have, they won't experience awe. But if they can't assimilate it, then they'll need to accommodate this new information. Now, if this is not accomplished, an individual will experience trauma, such as developing PTSD. You could see that the actual traumatic stressor being something that would create awe, especially that fear component. So if the individual can't accommodate, they'll experience awe and wonder. Uh, by this model, the same vast experience could lead to increased rigidity when assimilation succeeds or incre- or increased flexibility when the assimilation fails but accommodation succeeds. So despite the fact that I think we all know what awe is, we've all felt it, it actually has been very rarely scientifically studied. So Richard Lazarus in 94 wrote a book on emotions, and he said, Given awe and wonder's importance and emotional power, it is remarkable that so little scientific attention has been paid to aesthetic experience as a source of emotion in our lives. Research on awe is actually in its infancy and has really been focused on just describing it and the social consequences of it, not the internal process. Now, it's important to note that although awe a lot of times is tied to religion, that it shouldn't be limited there. It has recently become a topic of interest in a lot of atheist groups in response to statements by some religious people who say that atheists don't experience awe or that experiencing awe makes a person spiritual or religious. Um, For example, actually, Oprah Winfrey commented that she would not consider swimmer Diana Nyad an atheist because she experiences awe. And that's not necessarily true. You can have that mix of fear and admiration whether you believe in a god or not. So awe, yes, is often tied to religion, but it can be secular. Uh, But there's not lots of examples. There's uh, writings on something called being an awist, which is uh, from sociologist and atheist Phil Zuckerman. And there's also a book called Religion for Atheists by author Elaine de And there's actually a video out there from a philosopher named Jason Silva about how secular institutions should and can inspire awe. So lots of room for all there. Okay, so the article we're going to look at is actually about the effects of awe on body perception. Um, And this is from Van Elk, Karenin, Specker, Stamkow, and Boss in 2016. All right, so they state that awe is a really powerful emotion that people seek out and actually has some beneficial effects. So what this study wanted to do is two things. They wanted to 
get some insight in the effects of awe on body perception. Previous studies have shown that the feeling of feeling small and insignificant is a key feature of the experience of awe, but no study had actually directly investigated whether these feelings are literally accompanied by changes in your perceived body size. And the second... Uh, Building on recent findings that showed individual differences in the personality trait of absorption or is the tendency to get fully immersed in in an experience can actually predispose people to have these transcendent experiences. So they want to investigate the relationship between absorption and the experience of awe. All right, so they actually did four studies. I'm going to try and go them go over them quickly. So the first study, they manipulated feelings of awe by showing participants either an awe-inducing video a positive control video or a neutral control video. And then they looked at the effects of awe on body perception through the use of an explicit body size perception task in which people were required to estimate the perceived height and width of their body. So that this was administered both before and after the video, and it allowed them to control for for individual biases and body size estimation. So if you have people who will always over underestimate the size, they would do that both times. So they hypothesized that people in the awe condition would underestimate the size of their body, and this would be reflected in the smaller size estimates. Okay, so in this study, um, these informal observations and subjective reports show that many of the people perceive the awe video to be very overwhelming and experience these strong feelings of awe. But contrary to their hypothesis, there was not any kind of moderation effect of absorption on the experimental manipulation of awe. Instead, they found that people scoring high on absorption reported stronger feelings of awe compared to those who scored low on absorption. Also, there was no effect of awe on body perception observed. There was, there was, they, they didn't see themselves as smaller after the video. So in the second study, they kind of changed things up because they found that this whole body width height estimation is not quite optimal. Uh, and it makes me wonder, as a reader, is it because people already know how tall they are? Like, that's a pretty common thing. So in this study, they used a different measure of body perception by asking participants to rate their body size with respect to the experimental room on a scale and then kind of compare the two. They also aim to more directly assess the role of absorption in this experience of awe. So they explicitly manipulated absorption by instructing participants to get fully absorbed in the video or to watch the video with an analytical mindset. So they hypothesized that people would experience stronger feelings of awe in the absorption condition compared to control. Also, they expected participants would underestimate the size of their body and overestimate the size of objects in the absorption compared to the control condition. And finally, they thought that absorption would function as a moderator of these effects so that people who scored high in absorption would show the strongest effects of this manipulation. So they found that people in that in that group that were told to get absorbed in it did have greater feelings of awe than the people who were told to look at things analytically. But they still didn't find evidence for a moderating effect of absorption on this kind of on this measure of awe. What this indicates is that feelings of awe can actually be actively suppressed, where people who are instructed to be in a different mindset when exposed to the same stimuli would feel it less. So although the effects of awe on body perception were in the inspected direction, with participants feeling smaller in the awe compared to the control conditions, these effects were only mildly significant. Okay, so in the third study, it's really similar to the second study, but they wanted to get rid of what they would call learning or practice-related effects because the measures of body size estimation were repeated over participants. 
So, but still they had essentially the same, the same hypotheses as they did in number three. So in study three, they kind of replicated and extended findings from the previous two studies. Participants reported stronger feelings of awe in the experimental condition compared to control and people scoring high compared to low on the absorption trait overall reported stronger feelings of awe. So they also found that awe affected body size perception. People who perceived their body as smaller in the awe condition compared to the control conditions, and this effect was most pronounced for participants who scored high on absorption. Okay, so for the last study, they they want to answer an important question to them, which is, to what extent does the observed relation between absorption and awe and between awe and body perception, how are these two things connected, and will it extend to a more naturalistic environment? So in this study, they were relying on natural variability in, self, in self-reported awe in visitors of a video installation in a really old church in the city of Amsterdam. So they're asked to rate their feelings of awe in response to the visit, and they included similar measures of, of absorption as used in previous studies. So in this study, they found that the trait of absorption was a really significant predictor of feelings of awe, which, of course, extends the findings from their previous studies to something more valid because it's not just in a lab somewhere. In addition to this, the participants in study four came from a much wider range of different cultural backgrounds, thereby also controlling for this potential confound that the observed relation between awe and wonder in these lab studies was limited to the population of highly educated female psychology students. So although the effect of awe on body size perception in this study was not significant, the pattern was still in the same direction as observed in previous studies. So basically there was a negative correlation between awe and perceived body size. So the more awe, the smaller you were. You were. So basically all these studies, what they found is that there are two key features underlying the experience of awe and changes in the perception of one's body. So it's not only experiencing awe, but it's also whether you have a tendency to get absorbed in things or not. So yes, there is a there's an actual physical reaction that comes from awe, but some of it is also how you go about it and how you look at things, which can help explain why some people will see something amazing, whether it be art or nature or or a religious experience, and be taken in and be amazed by it, and other people will not. All right, so that's it for our psychological section. When we come back, Andrew will return to talk about Hugo. This is Chris Maynard. I'm host of the Following Films podcast. Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking hell or high water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on Deep Water Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. Even better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com. Check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son, Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. Okay, so we're back. We're back to talk about Hugo. Um, so, Andrew, I always like to kind of talk about our history with these movies. And this is a movie I, I saw in the theater and really enjoyed. Like, I enjoyed every minute of this movie. Uh, and then found out like kind of afterwards that this movie didn't really strike a chord with, with viewers. It did with critics. Critics seem to really love it. Uh, but if you look at kind of the scores, as far as like you go on Rotten Tomatoes and you look at the percentages and then you look at what the audience thought, there's definitely a distinction there. Uh, so I found mm. that really interesting because I really enjoyed it, but I do find that it's for me anyway, it's one of those movies that 
the first time is always best here because you really get like, especially visually when movies are this visually stunning. I think sometimes when you rewatch them, they lose a little bit and it loses a little bit for me. Um, so what is your, your kind of history with the movie and how has it been on rewatch for you? Um, I love this film in cinemas. I saw it in 3d and I think it is up there with gravity as probably being, one of the most essential 3d films to see not Uh, avatar avatar doesn't make your list i don't remember that film Uh, (laughs) it's like i know i spent three hours in the cinema but i don't remember it (laughs) um but hugo we'll talk about this in production design a little bit but sure I, i really love it in the cinema and i think it's a film that i wouldn't have sought out again only because I had such a powerful feeling of it in the cinema. And, of course, it was Martin Scorsese's first use of uh, 3D, and it worked really, really well. But I wasn't sure how it would work at home. And, yeah, it does kind of lose it a little bit at home, mostly because of the Sasha Baron Cohen sequences. Mm. Um, I think he's just a little bit not great. Um, But other than that, it's still quite good. And... You know, there there are a lot of reasons why this is a much better film than The Artist. And it frustrates me to no end that this lost to The Artist. I knew that that would come up. I I knew knew that would come up. (laughs) And the best thing is you can't use a clip from The Artist in here because it's all fucking silent. So... (laughs) I think you think too highly of my work ethic anyway. If you've noticed, like, the last 10 or 15 episodes, I don't think there's been a single sound clip. I'm like, nope, just trying to get these out, man. I don't <laughs> The con- Oh, really, it's just the conversations are so essential that I wouldn't want to interrupt them with, with clips from these films. I mean, really. Oh, naturally. That's what this is about. Yes, absolutely. All right. Uh, so let's talk about the direction. So, of course, this is Scorsese, second week in a row we've talked about him. Him. But I think this movie really stands out, and in, not in a good or a bad way necessarily, but just like it – if you look at the kind of plot of this movie and what's being looked at, it doesn't feel like a movie Scorsese would make. Uh, it's very family-friendly. Uh, it's very sweet uh, to the point that some people thought it was too sweet, like it was too sentimental. Um, and that's not something you think of when you think of Scorsese. So it's kind of good. It just shows you how great a director he is. That he could take something like this that isn't necessarily in his wheelhouse and still make an excellent film. Uh, so I was really impressed with that because there are there's none of the telltale Scorsese stuff here. You know, there's none of the there's none of the hyper violence. There's none of the language. It's the things he always gets flack for. And supposedly the reason like he he couldn't win an Oscar was because his stuff was too violent. Uh, but then he did this and couldn't win an Oscar anyway. So you know he went back and just started shooting people in the head in The Departed and won his Oscar. So who knows. You know, who knows what's go- what's going to do it. Um, but the thing, of course, I noticed first with the direction is this opening shot of the film, which is just gorgeous. Um, yep. And it is a very Scorsese thing. We have this, you know, wide sweeping shot. He's really he's really famous for this. Uh, but I think not that it doesn't in other movies, but it really serves a purpose here because 90 percent of the movie is going to be in this train station. So you really need to set the stage and do it in a way that doesn't bore the audience. And I think the visuals make it not boring for the audience. And I love that it just it ends on Hugo's eyes, like because we are seeing everything pretty much in this movie from his point of view. And I think the way it accomplishes this is not only really beautiful and stunning, but also really efficient. 
Yeah, I think he does a really stunning job of directing here. And, I mean, he's Martin Scorsese. Of course he does a stunning job. Pat um, on the back for Marty. You did you did good, yeah. kid. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. He's he's He knows what he's doing. And right. the whole point of this film is that it's a love letter to cinema. Yeah. And there is no way that he could create a love letter to cinema in his with his trademark violence or swearing and stuff like that. Right. Because this is a film that needs to be, as you're saying, it needs to be shown through Hugo's eyes and how it's somebody who is young and new to the world of cinema or, or new to the world of stories, I guess, in a way, right, is coming to experience it. And he manages to convey that perfectly because this is, this is a love letter to cinema. And specifically, it's a love letter to people who love telling stories like Georges Méliès. You know, he's... Obviously, he's a major character in this film, but there is a reason why he's there because he is one of the, you know, sort of the founding people right. of cinema. And I think Scorsese does a, a great job of conveying all of that. And he manages to make it interesting enough in certain ways. Yeah, okay, it's it's a little bit too long. Um, I think that it could probably be, you know, lose 15, 20 minutes or so, but the reason why those 15, 20 minutes are there is that it's, you know, you know, it's nods to other directors like uh, Jacques Tati as well mm. with those kinds of, um, those scenes where everything is happening on screen and you've got to look at different spots to, to understand the story a little bit more. I like that, but for the casual viewer, it may not work for mm. me as a film lover. I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah I was just going to ask if you thought that kind of, this definitely. I mean, I think there's no arguing that this is Martin Scorsese's ode to cinema, ode to his ode to kind of not necessarily what he grew up with, but things that inspired him to become a filmmaker. And I was wondering if you thought like that's why critics love this more than audiences did, because they, you know, most critics, especially back then, not so much now because we just let fucking anybody be a critic. Um, a lot yeah, of them, like, uh... yeah. A lot of them went to film school, so they know these references, right? Um, whereas the casual viewer would be like, "I've never, I don't know who Georges Méliès is. Who cares?" Uh, if mm. I, I find myself wondering if if this is something that this love letter misses people because they don't have kind of the they don't have the background maybe that Scorsese and all these critics do. Well, uh, and I hate to keep on bringing this film up, but only because it is in the year that, you know, it went up against a film like Hugo, which, as as I keep on repeating myself, is a love letter to cinema. But you look at the, the audience reaction to the artist where it is such a, you know, black and white basic film about this man trying to make a career in sound and stuff like that. And it's so easy to understand because it's so just, as I'm saying, it's black and white. It's it's right up there. Everything you need to know is up on the screen. There's a cute Whereas, dog, Andrew. That's all. That's uh, all. That's all we need. There's a cute dog. The dog's dead. He didn't get an Oscar nomination. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> says the animal lover. Good God, Andrew, <laughs> ease up, buddy. <laughs> the the dog in Hugo is much better than the dog in the artist. That's a given. Um, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but I I think the thing is is that. Yeah, okay, you don't know as, like, audiences may not know as much about what Scorsese is telling here in Hugo, but that doesn't matter. It's kind of like a launching pad for them to go and search out more about the history of cinema, mm. whereas a film like The Artist is basically saying, silent cinema? Ugh, go kill yourself. 
it's all about talkies. We only care about that. Oh, okay, fine. You know, (laughs) let's give that all the awards and not this. And it really frustrates me because I think this is a film that does deserve to be remembered. It's a film that does deserve to be talked about. And I'm glad that you're doing an episode on it because, you know, one of the things that Martin Scorsese is really well known for is film preservation. And, and, you know, this is essentially what this film, there is a whole sequence in this film that talks about how much film was lost. Yeah. And that that is not a conjured up fact. It's something that is genuinely happened that, you know, films were destroyed because of the chemicals. They could use the chemicals that, you know, resulted from it. And that's a devastating thing. And it's something that I wish that more people talked about because unfortunately, uh, not to drag Barry from uh, true bromance. Oh, go ahead. The, you know, it's fine. <laughs> you, you have heathens like him who, you know, won't listen, won't watch films before 1980. Yeah. And, you know, and then you have streaming services like Netflix who only have what, 70 films prior to the 1980s. Yep. And that's, that's a frightening thing because this is, you know, this is something that we need to talk about. Our history is such a powerful thing. Like, I can imagine there are millions of people who have no idea what Birth of a Nation is, and yet it is such an essential, relevant film to today, and nobody will have watched it. They'll watch Civil War ten times over and think, hey, Spider-Man. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think Sorry. you bring no, no, it's fine. I think you bring up a good point, and I think it's actually one of the scene you're talking about. It's one of the most heartbreaking moments of the film, where you see his films being, you know, boiled down to to make shoes essentially, and like so. It, and it's a great, it's a great simple metaphor too. Like our our history is literally being stepped on by people mm. as they're walking out of frame, and I, I think it's it's actually handled really well. And I think I think there is a lot of value in in seeing our history. And seeing our art through the years, I mean, it's it's one of the ways that hopefully we learn lessons is through the art of the time. Um, I, I get why Netflix doesn't uh, doesn't do that because they're a business. Like I, I get that they're a business and they want they want revenue. Uh, but I still think there should be places that that it, it should be available because I think there's a lot of value before 1980. Sorry, Barry. <laughs> But um, also speaking of the direction, I think the fact that it's set in this train station gives Scorsese um, a lot of opportunities to have some fun with his camera, and he and he does not <laughs> he does not stop himself here. There's there's one particular shot I remember. It's near the beginning of the film where again you're seeing things from Hugo's perspective, and you're seeing things out of the clock um, where he essentially mm-hmm. lives. So there's there's all these really creative shots uh, that Scorsese and his DP. Uh, get to do here. And I think with a lesser director, um, there would be moments where it, ju- it, it, it would feel like he was trapped, but there's such confidence behind the camera in this film that you never have that moment. You never have that moment of, oh, he's just showing off or, oh, it would be better if he wa- if he wasn't working with these restrictions, like just some really incredible work and memorable shots in this film. Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, this is a, it's a sign of a great cinematographer that they can transfer shots like that into a film like this. And, and because cinematography is such, it is the language of cinema in a way, it's what we see. It's, it is the visual element of it. So if it's not used properly, then it's, it's ineffective. Right. And, you know, it's, it's not done in a show offy 
I can zoom through the the handle of a kettle kind of way. Right. It's done yeah. in a in a way that actually means something to the story. And you know, the, there's a there's a shot which I think is just fantastic, and it loses impact at home because most of us don't have 3D TVs, and 3D TVs are dead now anyway. So, <laughs> um, but there's a 3D moment in this film which I found was so essential, where Sasha Baron's Cohen character leans into Hugo, and at first, he leans forward a little bit, and then he keeps on leaning. Mm-hmm. And I remember the 3D for that being just so effective because he leant a little bit, and then he kept on leaning. And I remember leaning back in my seat because I felt that he was actually leaning into me. Mm-hmm. You know, this was the the House of Wax ping pong, like the the ball and paddle kind of thing where people were like, wow, the ball's actually coming at me. That I've, I've never felt that before in right. 3D. And I felt it there. And that's a really difficult thing to actually convey in such a gimmicky right. thing that we, we take for granted nowadays because of films like Avatar. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you talked about like shots that are there for a reason and moments that are there for a reason. There's there's one thing that immediately springs to mind for me right before uh, Hugo decides to leave the train station and go track down Papa George. Um, there's a shot of him standing in front of the doors of the train station and you really get a sense of scale. You get a sense of yeah. how small he is and how big – not only this train station is, but how big the world outside is because you have these giant doors that are like almost probably out of proportion to reality. But I thought it was like a really good decision to really – because it really got us in the headspace of Hugo at that moment. Like like I don't want to leave here, but I have to and how terrifying the world is out there. And I just thought like, wow, what a what a great little shot that you didn't have to have. You could have had him – you know, he's an impetuous kid. You could have had him just running outside, you know, into the real world. But instead, he took a second to just show how big the world is. So I have a thought about that as well. Uh, And it's just, it's a kind of an, I don't think it's an intentional allegory or anything like that. But the train station to me feels like, you know, it feels like a cinema in the way that all of the stories are coming to Hugo mm, and they're mm-hmm. all, you know, everybody has their own little story. There's, um, and through most of it, it he's uh, a passive audience member. He's watching. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And Harry Potter's uncle is there trying to woo some, <laughs> some person and, you know, with a terrible dog. Story. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, there's all, there's all those little, those little things and yeah, he's very passive. But it's until he steps out and actually, you know, puts himself into that world that things really change, and right. things change for the better. And I think it's a it's a bit of an ode to creation. It's a bit of an ode to artists and wanting to allow your mind to be open and create things, and and also to interact with the things that we love and appreciate as well. To interact with the cinema that we love, and I think that's impressive. You know, it's a yeah. It may not be what they were aiming for, but that's how I read the film at least. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that immediately jumped to mind, but I can absolutely see that. And that wouldn't surprise me at all, especially given how the movie opens with him and him kind of being in hiding for most of the movie. And the fourth wall is never really broken until Sasha Baron Cohen shows up because no Mm. one notices this, you know, this urchin who's just kind of watching things and going through life. And he's getting to see all these little stories, all these people in the train station have their stories. And I think that that's definitely in there. All right, uh, so let's talk about the acting. So I know this movie is about Hugo, but I want to talk about Ben Kingsley because I think he's 
absolutely stunningly brilliant here. Like this is one of my favorite Ben Kingsley performances because it has it's I think his arc is really interesting uh in this film because I think a lot of his arc happens before we meet him. And we get to figure some of that out in flashback, which, of course, I'm sure we'll talk about in favorite scenes. But I remember watching this movie and the first half of the movie just thinking, like, this man is fucking evil. What is wrong with this guy? What what could have happened to this guy? Like, we have that scene with where he, you know, tries to fool Hugo and unveils the ashes of his book. Like, it's really – it's really cruel. Uh, and mm. I think it's a testament – not only to the writing, not only to the directing, but to the performance of Ben Kingsley in those flashbacks and in the scenes right after that we're convinced that this is a good person. Because for the first hour of the movie, he's pretty rough. And Ben Kingsley is very good at playing this kind of gruff, older guy who hates this kid, but also really good at showing this sense of creation and this sense of wonder that we'll talk about in the theme. Yeah, I think... I mean, he is fantastic, and I mean, he's Ben Kingsley. Like right. he was even good in that um, Thunderbirds film. You know, he's <laughs> he's watchable in anything. He's right. such a powerful actor, and it's because he is so gruff and angry in that first moments that we see him that it makes his understanding and and the the change, I guess, in a way, uh, in the second half, the reveal of of why he is that way, even more powerful. Because right. it's a pretty devastating thing that happens to him. And it's a pretty, you know, it's very powerful because in the sense that, you know, again, we're mourning for the amount of cinema that has been lost. And I was listening to a, a podcast today where they were talking about, um, uh, you know, some of the director's films like Jack Houston and stuff like that and, and John Ford and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the amount of John Ford films that have been lost because of them being burnt or destroyed is is heartbreaking because they, these are great masters of cinema they're great artists and in a way it's comparable to you know losing monet and you know all those kinds of great artists mm -hmm. to me at least i think they are and i think that it's it's on on scorsese's shoulders to help convey that but it's it's also equally on ben kingsley's shoulders to do that too and right. he does that very well here i think i think that it's really impressive that you know martin scorsese has littered this this film with kind of um, smaller actors who have are really good actors in certain ways. So, you know, you've got Ray Winston in one scene. Um, you've got, as I mentioned before, you've got Richard Griffiths in a small role. You have um, uh, Jude Law as well in a short moment too. You know, the, these kinds of actors are really good. And then you've also got Christopher Lee as a librarian, and they all work really well. They're not exceptionally memorable, but they are very talented in helping create the stereotypes that they need to create to make their, their characters work. What doesn't work so well is Asa Butterfield and Chloe Grace Moretz, but I find that forgivable. I was actually going to ask you about that because like, this is, I remember when I saw trailers for this movie, walking into this movie, that's what I was worried about. I'm always worried when the leads of a movie are kids. Cause it's tough. I mean, kids, kid actors are not fully formed actors uh, sometimes it's it's like if you see a good child performance, at least for me, I start wondering, okay, is this good acting or is it just good directing and good editing? Uh, because mm. sometimes like kids, you know, it's hard to be – it's it's hard for kids to to put themselves in other perspectives because childhood is a very selfish time 
of life. It's it's all about it's all about you. Um, so I think adult actors are better at kind of understanding like, oh, this is what it would be like to be that person and not be me as that person. Um, so I didn't mind Asa Butterfield's performance. I didn't think it was fantastic. Um, I thought it was probably uh, it was probably on the same level. Um, as the other child actor here, but none of it was so bad that it got on my nerves. It was never a moment of like, you know, heavy eye rolling, but it was also never a moment of like, oh, this is really, really good acting either. Yeah, that's that's fair. I think that, you know, he he conveys enough to make it all worthwhile and make it understandable. And I think that's good enough because his his story is not what this film is about. And I I feel a bit sorry for people who probably went and saw this film thinking, oh, it's a kid's film, you know, and then getting this whole thing about, you know, oh, people are afraid of trains on film coming out of the wall and stuff like that. Oh, how funny is that? But I don't think kids will get it. And, and right. it's a bit – it's one of those uh, difficult things about these kinds of G-rated films that – you know, yeah, okay, they they have no violence or swearing in them, and yeah, okay, the the lead is a kid, but doesn't mean it's for kids, right? Um, because yeah, they they don't think they would get a lot of this, and yeah, it's interesting because if you look at the content, it is very family friendly, but I don't think the story and the message is it's family friendly, but it's not for families necessarily. It's about like appreciation of art and, you know, it's about, you know, making sure we, we protect these things. It's a very, it's a very adult idea, you know, like a 12 year old is not going to care about preserving film. Usually that's not, that's not their focus. That's the focus yeah, of <laughs> people much older. Yeah. I've got a memory card. What do I need to preserve film for? Exactly. But I think, <laughs> I think this is the sort of film that if, you had a, you know, a kid who was interested in this kind of thing and you sat down with them afterwards and said, All right, this is why this happened and this is why this happened and that's why this is important, they would appreciate it a little bit more. Right. But, yeah, for the, for the most audiences, I don't think that they're going to relate to Asa Butterfield's character or Chloe Grace Moritz's character, uh, you know, which is fine. Right. You know, it's not a problem. I think um, I think also Scorsese, you mentioned like these big name actors who are in here. And not even necessarily big name, but like, you know, Christopher Lee is someone you definitely recognize right away, even if he's not like an A-list actor. Same thing with Jude Law. And especially at this period of time, Jude Law was pretty big. So I think he very smartly keeps them in these roles that they're barely there. They're there for one or two scenes. Because I think if you have Jude Law throughout 70% of this movie or Christopher Lee in six scenes, you're just going to be thinking about them as Christopher Lee or as Jude Law instead of as these very – these minor characters in his life that have a larger effect. And I think that's super smart. I think one of the people I was most impressed with um, was uh, – oh, what's his name? Uh, Michael Stuhlbarg who plays uh, Rene Tabard, uh, who is kind of this historian um, – about our character about Ben Kingsley's character and I think there's a lot of understated wonderful acting in this part like especially when he goes and visits the home and finds out that you know this was not okayed and you could see this like this is someone he not only respects but reveres and that really comes through just in body language and in these very minimal interactions and I was I was really impressed with him yeah he's a he's a very good actor and and certainly one of those uh, character actors who right. just kind of 
people appear he appears in films and people go wow I, I really like him and then forget who he is right. but I've, I've always appreciated him I think he's a really really underrated actor Emily Mortimer is also quite good here in her small <laughs> I knew you'd role. bring her up I was waiting for it <laughs> well in regards to I mean like Martin Scorsese has not really been known for for casting females in films no and which is fine it's not a problem um because even though his his stories that do feature females they are quite good uh, he does he's better at doing these these masculine stories so i'm not you know i don't mind that there's only two small minor female characters in this film um but i think she she fits a purpose and she does it well sasha baron cohen to a lesser extent as i was saying all oh, right we didn't even talk about him because we were just yeah. ignoring it okay so in terms of sasha baron cohen i didn't think uh, he was awful. No, many sasha baron cohen oh, by the way jesus um <laughs> i didn't think he was awful but i wouldn't go as far to say he was good either i think i think scorsese had his hands full here yeah. by casting him and he does his best to keep him contained and i think he mostly succeeds there are a couple moments that you just know are it's like i mean to a lesser degree because i think he's better a, about this but i think it's like when you're casting jack black in something you have your hands full and i think i think one of the only people to really accomplish keeping jack black at that perfect level um is um Richard Linklater? Um, yeah, is Richard Linklater in School of Rock. I think like that's that's like oh, the perfect Hold the phone. Bernie, by the way. Sorry. I still have, I still haven't seen that, so I can't I can't speak on that. Uh, <sighs> I've heard you talk about it a thousand times, which is why I don't watch it, because your taste is terrible. So <laughs> so I just assume it's awful. Um but I, I don't think I don't think Scorsese quite limited him enough. Um but in terms of direction, what I will say is I think those chase sequences work really well because of the staging. Uh, because of how many people are involved and how many people are in the way, because otherwise it's not believable that, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen, who's like six foot nine or whatever, these long legs would not eventually, even with his injury, would not catch up um, with Hugo. And I think those scenes are staged really well and are and seem relatively realistic. But basically any scene where Sasha Baron Cohen speaks, you're just like, oh, God, this is so the voice that everything is so over the top. Well, I think I mean he's he is effective to the point that the physical comedy works quite well, and right. that's that's what he's there for. He is that yep. that comedy surrogate, you know, the Alec Guinness style comedy person, and it's fine. You know, it it works fine. I just think we focus a little bit too much on him, and yeah, there's one or two know, too many scenes with him in it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah totally agree. All right. Um, so now we move on to the writing. Um, so what what is your opinion uh, of the script here? Is there are there are there problems with it? Is it is it a perfect script, Andrew? You and your perfect movies. Uh, I look. I haven't read the book that it's based on, which was I think it was like the the Adventures of Hugo, Hugo Cabaret. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, this was made in the period of time when they they thought, ah, oh, people won't understand long titles, so we've got to shorten it down to just one just word. One word, uh, Hugo. Yeah, that's it. Hugo. <laughs> that's it. It's fine. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly memorable about it, like in the sense that the dialogue isn't fantastic or anything like that. Um, descriptive moments of work are usually, you know, tend to not be uh, verbalized moments. So, like the 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 scene where the two kids watch the automaton, you know, working out the the uh, the picture, is fantastic. I really like that. That's a great but moment. Yeah, it's 
you know, I'm sure probably on the page it was like, and the automaton draws, you know, the, the moon with the rocket in space. And okay. <laughs> Next. Yeah. <laughs> Next. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I so, think, I think you're right. I think it's, it's missing, it's missing a little bit of punch. It's missing a little bit of pop. Like it doesn't, it's most movies we cover on here. You're like, Oh, I remember this line. That was great. And there's not, there's not a lot of that here. So much is, so much is dependent on direction and performance here um, because the script is pretty, pretty straightforward stuff. And one of the most memorable lines to me is like a little bit too on the nose for me to feel like it's a really good line when they have this discussion about her never seeing a movie and Hugo's like, just gall at like, you've never seen a movie. Like, okay, we get it. It's a, it's a love letter. Like I know, isn't that terrible that she's never seen a movie, but there's, you know, and then there's all these, we talked about the movie being a little bit too long and there are, there's all these conversations with, uh, Sasha Baron's Sasha Baron, Sasha Baron Cohen's character on the phone that go on a little bit too long. And it's kind of the same joke. And this, you know, this joke with the guy who drops off kids at the orphanage about his wife leaving him. And it, that stuff doesn't really land. It just, Mm. and it feels like it feels inappropriate for kind of the kind of movie this is to have. So, so there's kind of some missteps there that like, that aren't needed. Like really this story is about Hugo and Papa George. Like, let's get back to that. I don't need more comic relief here. Yeah, to me, it feels like, so another thing which I find really interesting, I was listening to a discussion recently um, where they were complaining about the film Brooklyn because there wasn't enough trash on the street. You should have just and turned it off right then. I well, If you complain about Brooklyn, <laughs> null and void, done. That's it. It's true. But the thing is, is that the film Brooklyn is not about, you know, the city of Brooklyn. It's about a romance. And I think the inclusion of the orphan stuff in Hugo is the trash on the streets of Brooklyn. Right. You know, it is that extra stuff which feels out of place because it's like, yeah, okay, we get it. There were orphans in the 1930s. You know, we understand that. We don't need all this. This This is not a movie about gritty realism. Like I don't, I don't need the gritty reboot of Hugo. Like I don't, I don't need that. I don't, I don't need a scene where he's like locked in a cage. Like that's, uh, like none of that, none of that really, really hit for me. And I think, I think one of the best things about this script is, is its patience in getting to the flashbacks. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's enough of that there that you don't need these extra sequences with Sasha Baron Cohen. Like it's just, it's just not necessary. It's he's he is definitely the antagonist of this film uh, for Hugo, and I think that's accomplished. Um, pretty quickly, like even in the first couple scenes of the movie, we get it and we don't need these constant, at least I didn't need these constant reminders. And I'm much more interested in kind of the mystery of why, why Papa George is the way he is. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I love those moments. Uh, I, I think, you know, that they make what this film, they make this film worthwhile seeing. And to me, in a way for film lovers, I think it makes it an essential film to see because mm. it's, it's film 101 in done by Martin Scorsese in an entertaining, good-looking way. Yeah. And that's good. That's true. Yeah. All right. Uh, so speaking of a good-looking movie, uh, we're going to talk about production value here. Um, so obviously the production value is high level. I mean this is a beautiful-looking movie from the first frame to the last frame. But I'm torn here, Andrew. Uh, so when I first saw it, as I, as I mentioned, like I just – I love the visuals, I, and they're fantastic. They're great visuals. 
I find myself wondering because like he is giving his ode to these old movies, which we end up seeing later in the film. We have very similar like kind of color palettes and brightness throughout the movie. And I find myself wondering if you if you took out if you kind of turned down the volume a little bit in the scenes in the train station, do the scenes in the flashback pop a little bit more? This kind of unreal look of the film like there's never a moment where this feels like, oh, this is just like reality. Everything is turned up to 11, and I think that's purposeful. But I, I think if we turn the turn the train station stuff down to six or seven, maybe the scenes, which are, I think, my favorite scenes in the movie, the the scenes in the flashback, if those, if those pop a little bit more and feel a little bit more theatrical. Like, I think on a basic level, I loved all the visuals, but maybe I wanted just a little bit of contrast between these two worlds. Yeah, I, I do agree, and especially because – you know that that would have made his dream sequence, which is a fantastic sequence and terrifying. Uh, he, yeah, it is terrifying, and it was brilliant in the three D too. Uh, you know that would have made that even better if he starts dreaming and the colors of the celluloid and stuff like that. Right. Um, it didn't bother me so much. I think it is a good looking film. It's a little bit too shiny. Right. Um, you know, not everything in the nineteen thirties was surely that glossy. Um. But it, it's fine. You know, I think it looks good. And the, the right. visual effects, at least, are really technically impressive. And, you know, the cinematography, as we've mentioned, is is just brilliant. Robert Richardson won the Oscar for it. And, you know, I think he did a really good job here. Even though I'm a little bit critical about um, cinematographers who do win for mostly CGI work. Um, right. Like, there are a lot of CGI shots in here, um, like that opening shot, which is beautiful. You know, the... It, it reminds me kind of of the opening of uh, Moulin Rouge. And I think. Oh, yeah, totally. Martin, yeah. I think Martin Scorsese does it better here. Um, you know, this this grand sweeping move over Paris, which is a beautiful looking city. So right. that's lovely. And it's conveyed really well here. The technical stuff in the second half is just is where the film shines. The, the reproduction of the, the grainy film and stuff like that is right. is essential. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the the kind of flashback sequences make up a really interesting short film all on their own, like kind of the the story of Papa George, like that maybe, I don't know, 15 to 20 minute sequence. Like I remember as I was watching this movie again uh, and I was thinking about like, what do I remember from this movie? And there's two things I remember. I remember the opening shot and I remember the flashbacks. Everything else just kind of like as I was watching, I was like, oh, yeah, this fucking nonsense with him running through and the dog and all that. OK, I remember that. But really, I just found myself like, can we get let's get to the flashback because that's where that's where the movie really shines on a lot of levels. You're right. It has that kind of like they've they've reproduced the look of this old film um, and also made us feel like we're a part of this kind of film history as we see him and his wife kind of in action uh, during these old films. And I think it's just masterfully done. But like I said, I just wish there, there was a little bit of that, of that difference here. And I think, I think maybe they just got so consumed with the ode to film and making it look like this, that we don't get how this would be eye opening for Hugo and so different from his world. Well, to me, in a way, it kind of feels like because this is Scorsese's first 3D film and he loved making it, he really enjoyed making it, you know, it feels to me like a director who has a really nice new tool and mm. just wants to use it on everything. This new that paintbrush is fantastic. Yeah. You know, it's a, 
and you know, of course, Ang Lee turned that up to a million with um, that wartime drama, whatever it was, you know, which was, it's like, yeah, okay, these tools are good, but you just need to use them sparingly. Right. And I wish that was used sparingly a little bit more here. Um, but hey, you can't fault the guy. I mean, he's been making films for, for longer than I've been alive and yeah. it's <laughs> great, you know, so if he wants to do it, brilliant. No worries. Yeah. I won't stop him. Yeah, oh, I absolutely. Stop him. But I, I, mean, I think I think that's a great point, and I think I'll, something that a lot of people fall prey to when a new technology comes out. It's just like I got to use it all the time. Look, we've never been able to do this before. And then you look at the movie fifteen years later, and you're like, oh, well, maybe maybe we shouldn't have done that. But luckily, I don't think this movie becomes a movie that you look at and it becomes obvious that that he was out of his depth or the effects don't work. It's not so effects heavy that that it ruins the movie uh, years later. Like it still looks really good and it's still an enjoyable experience. And I think, you know, up until we get to the flashbacks, this movie amounts to like, this is a really cute movie, uh, which is a strange thing to say about a Scorsese movie, like this very kind of heartwarming, cute film. Uh, but I think it becomes not dire, but it becomes much more serious as you figure out mm. kind of what happens to Papa George. And I think that stuff really works. All right. Um, so now uh, we get to our favorite scenes. Um, so what's, what is one of your favorite scenes of Hugo, Andrew? Um, I mean, it's, it is really, like we've talked about a lot, it has to be that, that sequence when he comes into the, the room and, you know, sees Hugo with all of his sketches and stuff like that. And then the, the next sequence after that, which is essentially – you know, them sitting down and hearing the story of what happened and to his films. And to me, that is, there's a reason why it's at that point in the film because yeah. Okay. The lead up to it is kind of like, all right, let's get to the point here. You know, what, <laughs> what is this film about? But that part is so emotional and so worth it that you understand why there is that lead up. Like I remember I, I, when rewatching this, I, I was thinking, I don't remember this film being so slow. Um, yeah. But it's only because of those strong second act moments that right. you go, all right, now I get it. You know, now I understand. And it makes it all worthwhile. So that particular sequence alone of where he's describing his history, mm. to me, I think is a powerful, powerful scene. Yeah, uh, tops- I- I think I think one of my favorite moments um, in in the kind of in that in that series of moments that you brought up is when he first walks in um, and they've been kind of playing the projector. And I think he has a line where he says something like, you know, I would recognize the sound of film anywhere. And at that moment, I remember the first time I watched it thinking he could either sit down and tell his story or he could bash this film into a million pieces. And I don't know which way he's going to go because Kingsley is so restrained in that moment. Like it's almost like he's biting off every word that he says because he's trying to contain his emotion and that stuff that really works. And it even works on a second and third watch. Like you can see how conflicted he is in that moment where he has Mm -hmm. these happy memories of making these films, but he also has this betrayal like just about how kind of the art world and the world itself has kind of turned its back on everything that he spent so much time and effort to create. And like his performance in that sequence, I mean, the lead up and his kind of storytelling moment are great. And it's just, and you know, Scorsese knew what he had in Ben Kingsley. Like there's a Mm. reason that all of the, the kind of powerful moments really go to him. 
Well, the thing is about that particular scene that works so well about it is that it's it's about being validated as an artist and as somebody who has, you know, wasn't validated during his, you know, film creation, which is why he stopped making film and and to, then to see, you know, young people being like, wow, this is fantastic. And then hearing somebody actually go, your work actually meant something to me is that's got to be invigorating. And I think that, right. that is, especially after so long. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it makes me. It, it maybe I'm probably leaning on the sad side of it a bit too much, but it it really makes me feel sorry for the the artists who died too soon or right. died at their own hand. You know, John Foster Wallace and stuff like that. Um, you know, for for being David Foster Wallace, not John Foster Wallace, the guy who wrote. Um, I'm thinking of the guy who wrote uh, Confederacy of Dunces. I can't remember his name for the moment, but anyway, thinking of artists like him who were praised after they died and it's right. it's devastating it's really sad and in a way it's kind of like it's a, a way of um validating artists whilst they're still alive and saying hey your work is different and we get it you're going against the grain but we like what you're doing and we appreciate it and and that's a that's a pretty big thing and and i don't know about you but uh, you know for the the podcast that we do we've had um we talk about fairly small films and we've had communications with directors who have emailed us and said, Hey, I'm just glad that somebody's watched it and really appreciate that you had some thoughts mm. about it. And, and for me, I think that is the one takeaway from this film is it's a, it's a film, it's a film about loving film, but it's also a film about appreciating the smaller people who do something different. Yeah. And it carries across really well here. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up as far as favorite scenes and kind of wanted to get your take on it is the the kind of two dream sequences in this film. We talked about the sequence where he kind of becomes an automaton, um, but there's also the train dream sequence, which got a lot of play in the trailers. Like that, I remember that, like the the train crashing through the train station uh, in the trailers, and thinking like, wow, that doesn't seem to really fit in with the the rest of what this trailer looks like. Like that is a very kind of trailer action-y moment. So what did you think of that particular sequence with the, the train crashing through? Well, it's, it's Scorsese's homage to, you know, that, that classic shot of the, you know, the black and white shot of the train falling out the side of a building. Like it's, it's a classic shot of that. And, and I love that because it's, it's his way of contextualizing it in a modern sense, in a modern environment. And it's a terrifying sequence too, because yeah. you know we didn't realize that it's not real to begin with. And you know, I remember thinking uh, what my thoughts were when I saw it in the cinema. Like, geez, does Hugo get knocked off in this film? That's, right. that's pretty dark. There's, oh, here's Scorsese. <laughs> we were waiting for it. Like Scorsese yeah. finally shows up. Yeah. Ah, uh, you thought this was kids' film. <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> yeah i mean i think i think the reason i like that is it doesn't make a terrible amount of sense as you're watching it so you should be on guard and think this is a dream but it's so well produced that i i mean even watching it again when i know in my head it's a dream it's still a very visceral scary scene for hugo and i think a lot of it is because we're in 
we're in Hugo's shoes for this entire movie. So the world is big and the world is scary. So for this to happen, it's just it's just one more thing, man, <laughs> like, for poor Hugo to go through. Um, and I think it really works not only on an emotional level, but it definitely works on on an effects level. I think, you know, mm. a lot a lot of money, a lot of time went in to this particular sequence. And and it really, really works for me. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, cool. So now uh, we are going to move on to the theme, uh, which is wonder. Um, so how do you think the movie captured uh, this theme? Or did it? Am I just barking up the wrong tree with this theme? Uh, well, the dog, as I mentioned, was pretty good in this film. So, you know, <laughs> you've, you've done well here. Um, no, but this, this is the, the theme when, I, when you mentioned it, I was a bit like, okay, sure. Um, and I guess in my mind, I'm like, I don't understand how that applies to Lion, but for some reason I was thinking of Lion and then I watched Hugo. I'm like, of course it applies to Hugo. And it's about, you know, the, it's about the wonder of, of film. And, you know, going back to what you're saying that, that line where, you know, Asa Butterfield, well, Hugo says to Chloe Grace Moritz's character, what, you haven't seen a film. And it's kind of like, you know, part of me is like, dude, it's 1930s films haven't been around for that long. <laughs> what are there like 12 movies? Calm down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, Settle down. You live in a train station, you know. <laughs> okay, dude. That'll be the opening of the show. Settle down. You live in a train station. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think that that's the thing is that, you know, while she's not great in this film, I think she manages to display the wonder of yeah. of watching a film. And I can't remember exactly what the film it is that they're watching, but you can certainly tell. It's like, oh, my God this is this is life changing and mm -hmm. that's the thing about it is that you know wonder or can inspire you and can change your life and i think that that's that is the sole theme of this film and it, it fits perfectly yeah yeah i mean i think i think it's smart to use um the child actors as kind of the proxy for wonder here because you know it's the first time you see a movie, the first time you see a great work of art, whatever it is, that's that's going to be the most amount of wonder you feel. But I think the fact that this is this love letter to film really shows that this is how Scorsese feels about movies still. That like they can still inspire this sense of awe, this sense of wonder. And I think I think you have you have the scene in the movie theater, but you also have that scene um where they're watching his where they're kind of watching his old film and kind of seeing how this stuff was made and getting that sense of wonder not only at the finished product, but but the process as well. Mm. And I think, you know, of course, Scorsese being who he is, he's he's still in awe in a lot of ways at the process, even though he's kind of a master of the craft. Like every time you hear him talk in interviews or talk about movies that he has seen, he still has in a weird way this kind of childlike sense of of art and how movies are made. And I think I think that's so cool to see someone who's 60, 70, 80 years old still have still have that awe, still have that wonder. And I think that's the great thing about movies. Like I've had, I've had discussions with people online about like, Oh, why would you bother seeing that movie? That movie looks like it's going to be bad. But if I went, I went, if I went about movies that way, there's a bunch of movies I never would have seen 
and a movie that yeah. would have skipped that I really enjoyed. And I think that that sense of mystery and that sense of you never know what you're going to get is what makes whatever art you love, whether it's music, whether it's film, whether it's television, whether it's, you know, whether whether it's, you know, going to a museum and seeing paintings or mixed media presentations like that is the great thing about art is that it can surprise us. Like, you know, we've seen thousands of movies, some of us, literally have seen thousands of movies. And still, every year there's a movie that comes out that does something that I feel like I've never seen before. And that is the cool thing about this this kind of method of creation. And I think the movie really hits that really well. Well, it's it's one of the few mediums that can, you know, hit people, like hit everybody in a, in a way. So, you know, books, yeah, okay as long as you're reading in the language that's written, then great. But a lot of it is, you know, contextualized. You need to understand certain elements of what you're reading and stuff like that. So it doesn't work so well. You know, painted artwork and stuff like that, people may have an experience, but a lot of people may not. Whereas films are the most, the broadest scope. You know, somebody will get something from most cinema. And right. even if it's just you, you're bored or something like that, then then fine, no worries. But, the power of cinema can thrill, can inspire, can encourage, and and it's through artists like Martin Scorsese, who, you know, as you're saying, he he has that childlike wonder. He is somebody who I love listening to talk because mm-hmm. he is somebody you can't shut up, and <laughs> he true. just loves talking about cinema. And somebody at his age is not going, oh, I don't think we need more aliens films and stuff like that. He's going, man, have you seen Tony Erdman? That was brilliant. You know, that kind right. of thing. So he's somebody who is excited about the the power and the, the accessibility of cinema. And that I think is just something to, to love and admire. Yeah, absolutely agree. Okay. Um, so the last thing we have to talk about um, is the movie we're pairing this with. So we're going to have to like, really contain Andrew here because we're going to have a whole episode on Lion. So I want you to try and think back to before you saw it. And were you excited about seeing this, just kind of finding out the basics of what it was about? Uh, I, well, I mean, when I first heard that it was coming um, beginning of last year, I was excited. And then I saw the trailer and I was in tears. And then, yeah, I just uh, like this, this film it's an Australian film and we don't get these kinds of So like of by law, do you have to, do you have to be excited about this? I mean, it's an Australian uh, Yeah, film. I, I have to. <laughs> I, that's, that was part of the, the creation of my podcast about Australian cinema. <laughs> I had to, I have to be excited, but we don't get to tell these kinds of stories too, too often. So yeah, right. that, that really excited, that aspect excited me. The story itself intrigued me. And you'll have to tune in for the next episode to find out what I have to say about it. <laughs> yes. So for me, when I first heard about it, I think I, I heard kind of rumblings about it when it was on, you know, the festival tour and people were talking about how good it was. Uh, and then I can't remember what movie I saw, but I saw some, you know, art house movie and there was a trailer for it. Uh, and I was like, wow, I, I really like Deb Patel. One, Deb Patel is beautiful to look at. So there's that. And he's got Michael loved this. He has great. He has amazing hair. 
in this movie. He grew out the hair long. Uh, He's got a good beard. He, he does. He has an excellent beard uh, and an excellent accent, which we'll talk about on our next episode. Um, but he's one of those actors who I really like. I've liked him in everything I've seen him in, even in movies I don't like. Um, so I'm always kind of looking forward to his next performance. And I find myself constantly wishing that he would get better roles. And I saw this and I thought like, oh, he's finally getting like a juicy role, something to really sink his teeth into. So I was really excited about that. So definitely looking forward to Lion. Um, so on our next episode, Andrew will be back. Um, it'll take three or four days for him to come back for you, but he's really just coming back in like five minutes. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about lion. Um, so, so that'll, that'll be, uh, that, that'll be our next episode. So, uh, Andrew, one more time, why don't you let people know about your two podcasts and where they can find them? Uh, yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, so I do AB film review, the fortnightly film review podcast with my wife, Bendit straightforward there's lots of swearing arguments stuff like that <laughs> it's exciting apparently um and then also uh the other podcast i do which is called the last new wave which is about australian cinema there's a lot of films you've probably never heard on there and um i enjoy it it's it's good it's just a vessel to get australian films out to a wider audience hopefully at least and they're both found on abfilmreview.com All right, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. As we mentioned on this episode, we will be back very soon to do a new-ish release review of Lion, the film that's been nominated for a couple Academy Awards, so we'll cover that with Andrew. And if you'd like to help out the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. One, just keep listening. I, I love that you're out there listening and uh, even getting involved in places like Twitter, uh, where you can follow me at PCK Study. You can also go to followingfilms.com and check out some other great movie podcasts, like The Best and Worst of the Best, which I will be a guest on very soon, so look out for that. And if you really want to help and you have the money to do it, you can go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy, and there you can actually donate on a per-episode basis and if you donate enough you can get some really cool rewards you can get mentioned on the show you can plan an episode of the show for me tell me what movie to watch lots of cool stuff and a really great way to support an independent podcast all right so that's it for now until next time i will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch One of the things I like uh, is um, if you look at like the maps of of what happens to the world when the the polar ice caps melt, and you look at a map of Perth, and it's like it, gradually there's no Perth, <laughs> it's just gone. I'm like, okay, well, at least I know what's coming. Like, yeah, I know what to look forward to. Yeah, and and where where we live as well i'm like okay so maybe after about two or three years we'll be drowned so okay so buy a boat is that is that your fiscal plan for the rest of your life is buy a boat (laughs) i've just i've just committed to i'm tailor only the end of deep impact you know (laughs) fuck it like Like, just i'm done (laughs) i got no more yeah i hear you all right, so let's talk about wonder and happiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah that sounds All right. good. Yeah. All right.